Hey folks, this is Dave Harvey welcoming you to the Am I Called podcast again. And uh, joining me today, sitting across from me today, is Jamin Stinziano. Jamin's the, the lead pastor of the church where I get to be at as well. And that's Summit Church here in Naples, Florida. And uh, Jamin, today we are interviewing a man known to many as a pastor, as a theologian, uh, as a mentor. He's known to you as a friend. He's known to me as an, an author. And I'm, of course, I'm talking about Dr. Tom Askell. Why don't you tell our listeners about Tom? Yeah, Tom is, uh, I consider Tom a great friend, uh, not only in ministry, but uh, just the type of man that I love to, to be around and talk to and, and learn from. So Tom and I met probably about eight years ago or so. Uh, I was actually reading a book uh, back then, and Tom's name was listed in it. I won't say if it was a, a, in a positive way or not, but uh, Tom's name was in it, and I uh, saw that he was here in our local area in Cape Coral, and so uh, reached out to him through some different friendships that, uh, mutual friends that we had, and uh, ever since then, it's just been a great friendship, and so uh, Tom is the type of man that, you know, when we write out theological statements or when we're learning certain things over the years, we've sent these things on to Tom, asked Tom to read through them or help us think through them. He's always been so gracious with his time, uh, whether it was conversations about eldership or conversations about membership or our understanding of the gospel. Uh, Tom's just been a real, real wonderful resource for us as a church. Uh, Tom's preached in our church before. You know, I think back to when Tom preached a couple years ago on Ephesians 1, he talked about the symphony of the gospel. I still remember the imagery. And uh, only a few families left our church over that message, but uh, most of them stayed. So, so we rejoice in, uh, in his preaching ministry. I've had the opportunity to preach in his church and uh, to witness um, just the community that he has there at Grace Baptist Church. It's a real joy to see. So I, I'm really excited uh, to be a part of this with my friend Tom. As am I. And Tom, it's, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me to be a part of this. Dave, I look forward to meeting you personally. Jamin, thank you for those kind words. Uh, I count you a dear friend as well. Now, Tom, when, when I heard this, I could, I could hardly believe it, and I do not want to trivialize, trivialize it in any way, but you were struck by lightning in 2008. Is that accurate? Uh, that's accurate, yeah. I think this is the first in the short history of Am I Called Podcasting that we've had a victim of a lightning bolt um <laughs> was that something that you you know that you were uh, uh hospitalized by no it's uh it's really a strange kind of story um it was about one o'clock in the morning our alarm system had gone off at our house uh got out with my son to investigate where it looked like there was a breach and couldn't find anything there it was definitive so we call it, the police came. We called the police. They were out in the front yard, wanted me to come check one of the cars. So I went, and by at the time that I, I reached to grab the car, uh, a lightning bolt hit and knocked me back uh, several feet. The policemen were right there, and trying. they said I lost consciousness. I don't recall that. But anyway, they dragged me in the house when another lightning bolt hit. And um, they called EMTs. I think we went out with like seven EMTs in the in the house we found out later that they all came because nobody had ever seen anyone hit by lightning and they all wanted that experience <laughs> but i was conscious and um 
a lot of activity in the house. They encouraged me to go to the hospital, but uh, I passed their tests, and so they uh, didn't insist on it. And I went to, you know, tried to go to sleep. I couldn't go to sleep. About four o'clock that day, that morning, I finally did go to sleep for a couple of hours, and got up and felt okay, and got in the car to drive to the church about ten o'clock, and uh, the road was moving. I, you know, everything was swimming, and that's when I knew something was wrong. And, and uh, so I wound up going to the doctor, and then things became a blur for many days after that. It was weeks after that, which I've discovered since. 90% of the people hit by lightning don't die, which I had always assumed that was, you know, that was the end of you whenever that happened. And uh, But the next several months were kind of like a fog and um, just took a while to kind of get back and be able to do things that I needed to do. Wow. Well, I'm certainly glad you were part of the 90%. How long yeah. did it take to until the effects of it lifted? Well, um, there's still some effects. It's it's bizarre, and um, you know, again, there's a there's a lightning strike survivors group that you know for years I just kind of disdained even the thought of contacting them. But I've contacted them and gotten some real help from them. And there's there's just a lot of bizarre things that are associated with this, um, with your nervous system, and so um, I, I I was helped by talking to other people who, when I described things to them, they said, yeah, we know what you're talking about. And you know, we've had this happen as well. So uh, most of the big, you know, the big things are not problematic and I can function very much the way that I need to function without difficulty. It's just only now on, on occasions. Um, one, one to give you one example, driving over bridges has been uh, one of the most stressful things in my life since then which you wouldn't think would, you know, where was, I have no connection for that or why that would be. But, um, most days I can do it without much difficulty. But the other day was in a lightning storm in a funeral uh, out in a graveyard and, you know, I had to stay there and that was unnerving. I got back in the car. I could not go back from Fort Myers to Cape Coral. I couldn't drive across the bridge. Uh, so it's bizarre stuff like that, but nothing that's debilitating. And I'm grateful to the Lord for the wonderful grace he's shown me through it. Well, from what I hear of your of your ministry, it doesn't seem to have slowed you down at all, which is a great blessing to all of us. So, so Tom, you have been a pastor at Grace Baptist Church for, is it 31 years? Yeah, that's right. So take us back then to, you know, the early days before you were in full-time vocational ministry and and what was it that God was doing in your heart? What were you experiencing where you felt a draw to preach the gospel, a draw to, to pastor God's people? Well, <clears throat> when I was uh, in high school, actually, I had this overwhelming sense that this is what God was directing my life to do. I was actually uh, 15 years old, and uh, God had just dealt with me pretty severely during that year and bringing me to a, uh, a real settled conviction that I was his and that I needed to live for him. And then out of that, um, we had a, a guest speaker one time and in one of those messages, I don't remember even what he said. I don't think it was a big push or call for people to go into the ministry, but I just walked away with a conviction that God wanted me to be a pastor. And I felt like it was a, uh, a cruel joke, you know, a cosmic joke, because I didn't like pastors. 
I didn't trust pastors. I was very jaded for a variety of reasons, none of which was legitimate. Uh, looking back, you know, once I became a pastor, I, I felt very sorry for the men that had been my pastor that <laughs> I was I harbored those hard thoughts toward. But uh, nevertheless, I had that. And so I just felt like this is a trick. Uh, but I did have a, a, a godly pastor who helped me to think through it. The uh, church asked me to preach. I preached. They affirmed that. And so they they licensed me to preach was the process in the Baptist circles I was I grew up in. How old were you when they when you had your did your first message? Uh, Sixteen. Sixteen. Yeah, wow. Isn't that scary? <laughs> have you been so, able to listen back to that message? Was it uh, recorded or or did they have recording back then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was on Sanskrit, I think, yeah. I think. So I've gone back and tried to decipher it. But no, it was about 20 minutes long, 15 minutes long, and I'd said everything that I knew. Hmm. And uh, it was done. But uh, but one of the things that happened is one of my best friends was converted in that message. Wow. So uh, And he he actually became a pastor as a pastor today. So you know, God, through the church, confirmed that. I went off to college and had this sense. I was preaching here and there. People would find out, you know, there was a young guy that preached and they would invite me to do that. I went to A&M, Texas A&M, and um, tried to get away from this sense of call. Uh, Studied sociology, psychology, decided to go into social work, thinking that helps people. God will be satisfied with me being a social worker. And my senior year at A&M, starting my senior year, I actually had a contract offer from an organization to come to work to the, for them after I graduated. They wanted me to go ahead and sign to uh, work with young people out in uh, kind of wilderness adventure type of things. They call it stress backpacking back then where you take juvenile delinquents and who had, you couldn't fit into any kind of institutional setting and get them out away from everything and uh, try to help them. So I was ready to sign that contract and I had, been asked to preach at a church, little church in College Station. So I went and preached for them and negotiating with the folks for this organization. They asked me back the next week. I did it again. And the third week I did it and they said, hey, we want you to be our pastor. And uh, that wasn't even on my radar. But uh, I just had this overwhelming sense that was right. It was from God. I counseled with people I trusted. They encouraged it. So on October 31st, 1978, I agreed to be the pastor of Rock Prairie Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. And that's how I got into the ministry, uh, was through that congregation's uh, willingness to, to ask me to come serve them. And then how long were you there? I was there two years. I graduated from ADM, and uh, I'd been kind of poisoned on seminary by the one pastor that I trusted. He, he told me that, you know, you go to seminary, it ruins you. So I had no interest in that. But when I graduated, I'm pastoring this little church that couldn't afford to pay me much. And um, I didn't have anything better to do. And there was a seminary three hours away. So I decided to uh, enroll in the seminary uh, in Fort Worth, Southwestern Baptist Theological, and went there. My brother had graduated from there. So I had some sense about the school and had met a couple of professors because I, you know, I had this dilemma. Uh, here I am uh, serving as a pastor and I don't like pastors and um so my brother invited me up one year at thanksgiving and um, he had set appointments with three professors for me to talk to so the first one was a an education guy and he said you know it's horrible that you have hard thoughts toward pastors you should repent of that and uh, an ethics guy 
And he said, well, you just hadn't met enough pastors. You know, I could introduce you to a lot of pastors that are good guys. And then he introduced me to a historian, Tom Nettles, and he listened to me and he said, well, you know, you're right. There are a lot of bad pastors <laughs> and uh, you shouldn't be one if you're going to be a pastor. And, and uh, <laughs> man, he just, you know, I, I, it opened up a, a communication and relationship with him that's lasted through the years. And God used him to kind of reorient my thinking. So I went to Southwestern and then my first year in Southwestern, a church in Dallas called me to come be an assistant pastor. And I did that for five and a half years before moving to Cape Coral. You know, one of the things that struck me when I was talking to Jamin and then reading a little bit about your history is just that, you know, you've been in the same church for 31 years and how unusual that's becoming these days as, you know, long pastorates are, are, are becoming a less frequent phenomenon in the church. And, you know, I was just thinking about the opportunity that provides for you to have a, to have a voice into the lives of young church planters and pastors and to give them a vision for, you know, for staying in one place for a longer period of time. So, you know, what would you want to say to a young guy who is either considering ministry, maybe planting a church, or maybe he's been in a church for a couple of years and he's thinking about getting out because it's it's getting tough. What would you want to say to him about the benefits of remaining in one place, serving in one place? Yeah, well, I mean, there are there are tremendous benefits. You just get to see things if you hang around that you wouldn't get to see if you left uh, sooner uh, rather than later. And I mean, I've had the privilege of, um, of of seeing converted and baptizing the children of people that I saw converted and baptized, you know, a generation ago now mm-hmm. almost. Um, marrying the children of the parents that I married, uh, you know, burying the parents that were converted here, uh, whose children are faithful in the church. I mean, just things like that that have been real blessings and. I wouldn't try to be the Holy Spirit for anyone. You know, I know that uh, God moves people as he sees fit, and that's strictly his prerogative. So I wouldn't want to have anybody feel guilty about not staying uh, long term. But the the value of it is that things that are so big and seem insurmountable in six months or a year or two years or three years— they tend to kind of flatten out and you see them in a different perspective from a, 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 the vantage point of 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. And that just steals you, you know, it just helps you for the future. And so you know, I've seen a lot of different things. And I, I tell people that I've been at this church 31 years, but I've probably pastored four different churches in that time period. And this congregation's had at least three different pastors you know, in that time period. Because there's growth, there's change, uh, things you know go in directions that God providentially orders, and so there's it's not like it's it's not the way it was 31 years ago. I'm not the same guy. This isn't the same church. One of the things too that I, I take great comfort in is uh, Paul talks to the Corinthians about the reason that he's not going to come or the reason that he couldn't come in, in second Corinthians 13 I think it's that passage that um, or maybe it's first Corinthians 16 I think it's first Corinthians 16 maybe verse 9 or right around there where he says but I'm going to stay in Ephesus because there are many adversaries 
and a, a great door of opportunity has been opened to me. And the adversaries are not a reason to leave. He says, I'm staying because there are adversaries. And most of the time we look at troubles as reasons to leave or signals from God that we need to get out. But that's not always the case. And, and when there's trouble, that's when people need a shepherd. That's when the church needs to be helped the most. And so, again, I would never try to lord it over anyone's conscience that, uh, you know, if they leave, they should feel guilty. But I do think that we tend as a, a group of of church leaders in our day, I think we tend to leave too quickly uh, without you know, being willing to stay. So, Dave, I had the opportunity last year to be at the celebration um, for Tom and for Donna for their 30 years at the church. It was it was a really, really special thing to be there. The church did a big surprise get-together. You know, Tom and Donna walk in, have no idea what's going on, and the church is filled with, you know, current church members, past church members that wow. have moved away, other pastors in town that have been impacted by them. So, uh, first of all, for me, it was just this wonderful moment of something to aspire to, to hope for. God, uh, if you would be so gracious as to allow us to stay in this place for this amount of time, uh, would you do that? But obviously, like Dave, or like Tom is saying, we don't lord that over others and we don't lord it over ourselves. But, but Tom, I'm interested in hearing you talk a little bit more about the time aspect. So uh, we've been talking even, you know, in my circle of, of folks that I work with, we've been talking about a decision uh, that might put us three years down the road um, not being where we want to be today, but understanding that th- that maybe those three years are necessary for the development of whatever it is the Lord wants us to do. And in the here and now, three years sounds like an eternity, but looking back, <laughs> it's not very long at all. So can you yeah. just talk about how you've navigated through those types of things, what you've learned about that, especially for young folks listening to this, wanting to jump right into whatever it is that they feel like the Lord's calling them to. Uh, it might be hard to wait and to uh, allow the Lord to take his time in doing what he wants to do before we can step forward. Yeah, boy, that's a great question. Great point. In fact, just before uh, I got on with you guys, I was talking with a young church planter and uh, that issue came up. It was I, I made reference to something that we had done in the early years. Uh, we're a confessional church. And so I, in introducing the confessions of faith that I wanted the church to be familiar with, I took two years to teach through one of them. It's the Second London, so it's a long, big confession, Second London Baptist Confession. And he, he said, two years. He said, man, that just seems like an eternity to me right now. He said, but, you know, I get it. Thinking down the road 30 years, that two years isn't that big a deal. And it's it's really not. And so, yeah, the, the things time right now and you want to see everything happen right now i get that i want that too but whenever we can stretch it out and realize okay you know god is not bound by our timetable and very often god has been pleased to do things throughout history in uh, lengthy periods of time i I think about these guys that met at the end of uh, the 18th century in the you know 1784 to 1792 there were five men that met prayed every month together for the advance of the gospel throughout the world. And out of that came the the modern missionary movement we refer back to with William Carey. He was a part of that prayer group. But eight years, and you read some of their journals, and they say, man, nothing happened. You know, we, we met to pray, and it was a waste of time, and mm-hmm. my heart was cold, and, you know, God didn't meet with us. And they just had this sense that nothing was going on, but it was eight years of preparation. 
uh, for what became an incredible movement. And then when Kerry went to to uh, India, it was seven years before he saw his first convert. Mm-hmm. I've often wondered, you know, what would he have done? What would have happened if he'd left at six years and nine months? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, he would have missed it. He would have missed the things that could have happened. And same thing with Adoniram Judson, seven years before his first convert in Burma. And so we just not, we never know. And it's it's what we, we what we do know is we're called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful today, tomorrow, and however many tomorrows God gives us with what He's entrusted us to do now. That doesn't mean we don't think about the future and make plans, but man. Being faithful today is not nothing, and that's significant, and it is what God uses to build into what he intends to happen. So that developing that, I, don't, I wish I could tell you I have that. I never struggle with it, but I know it's true, and I try to remind myself of it, and other brothers help me to think of it too. Just trust in God to do what he's going to do in his timing while we try to get the, the most miles per gallon we can with what he's given to us right now. Uh, to the best of our ability. Hmm. That's good. So, so Tom, somewhere in that timeline, you started um, Founders Ministry. It's, you know, you wanted to encourage the recovery of the gospel and and the biblical reformation of churches. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's doing all these things. It's organizing events and publishing a journal and, and connecting pastors with churches. And it's, it's kind of an arm of, of, of your ministry. I'm just curious, you know, what, what was going on when you, when you were thinking about starting that ministry that seemed to necessitate the, the starting of a ministry like that? What were you seeing? What were you experiencing? What, what need did you want to fill by starting Founders Ministry? Yeah, well, and again, that, uh, you know, looking back on Founders, I can see that, you know, it has become and, and it has been involved in things none of us ever envisioned. Uh, we were not, you know, we didn't have this great game plan that has been executed. Uh, it was back in 1982, and I was in seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, Ernie Reisinger was a pastor on the other coast of Florida over in Pompano Beach. Tom Nettles had just left Southwestern to go teach at Mid-America Seminary in Memphis. And so those two men, Tom and Ernie, uh, contacted several of the rest of us that had become friends. And seven of us met then in Dallas, right outside Dallas and Euless, at a hotel room for one Saturday to get together and pray. Because we'd all come to believe the doctrines of grace. We were all Baptists, but we'd all come to believe the doctrines of grace. And we had discovered that these uh, theological convictions that we were now holding were the very convictions that had founded the Southern Baptist Convention. So in 1845, you had 293 delegates got together in Georgia, Augusta, Georgia, to start the SBC. Every one of them came from churches or associations or institutions that held to the Second London Baptist Confession in one of its various forms. And so they were all committed to these same doctrines, and we weren't seeing it you know, where we were. This is in the early throes of the big inerrancy movement within the SBC. So there were a lot of, uh, of things up in the air, a lot of uncertainty, whether or not the convention would be turned back to a robust commitment to the full authority, uh, inerrancy, sufficiency of God's word. Those battles were just raging, and we were all inerrantists, but we realized that, okay, uh, once we determine and have agreement that the Bible is inerrant, we're still going to have to deal with what it says. And we were looking at what the Bible said, what God was teaching us. We weren't seeing these things fleshed out in the churches that we'd grown up in, that we were familiar with. 
So things like regenerate church membership and the practice of both uh, uh, formative and corrective discipline in the churches, expositional preaching, those, those were things that were not common in those days. And uh, a robust theological understanding of the Christian life and worldview. So we wanted those things. We thought they were right. We thought they were biblical. So we got together. We prayed on that, that Saturday in November of 1982. Out of that prayer meeting, which we spent like four hours together in prayer and then four hours reading scripture, or during that time reading scripture and singing, and then about three hours in the afternoon planning uh, what we might do. We decided to have a conference. So we scheduled a conference for Memphis in 1983. We didn't know if anybody besides the seven of us would show up. And uh, we had it, and almost 100 people showed up, and we were blown away that there were that many people interested in a conference based upon the doctrines of grace. So we just said, well, we've got to do this again next year. So we've got to do it again next year. So we just began to have these conferences. And from that, the various elements of Founders Ministries developed, the most significant of which, over time, was the uh, is our, our website, our, our Founders Online presence. And by God's grace, there was a, uh, an engineering professor at Auburn University, Stan Reeves, who's still a dear friend today. He called me, I think it was 1996, <clears throat> and uh, he said, hey, Tom, I love Founders, what you guys are doing. So you've helped me a lot. So I would like to build a website for Founders Ministries. And so we talked about it, and he's selling me on the idea. And I said, well, okay, you know, why don't you go ahead and do that, put something together, and, you know, call me back, show me what you're talking about. And so this is the early days of the internet, you know, so I hung up and I started calling everybody I know, asking, what is a website? And what does it, what do you mean by a website? And so Stan put us on the internet long before most other people were out there. And we began to just put all the works we could. We, we had to type them out by hand. We'd type out these articles and he'd put them in HTML and put them up on, on the web. <clears throat> so that's kind of how founders got going and, we were just we wanted to see a robust commitment to the gospel. We wanted to see a genuine commitment to biblical ecclesiology as we understood it as Baptists. Huh. Yeah, you know, um one of the things I was thinking about just with respect to this this path that you've been on is that you have this this whole academic side where you're you know, you're teaching, you're a professor, you're teaching it's it's Southeastern Baptist, is that correct? Uh, yeah, I'm an adjunct there. Yeah, and, and Covenant <clears throat> Baptist, and you do some work at RTS as well. Right. And uh, so you got your your feet planted, not only in the local church, but also in the seminary. And uh, and then you're running this site with all of the different services that it it provides with the conferences and, and how that draws in young men who are interested in, in pr- probably a, many of them a seminary track. And so I'm just kind of wondering, you know, as, as a guy who's lived in both of those worlds, imagine for a second that you're advising or counseling a young guy who's uh, debating whether to go down the scholarship track, down, you know, the teaching track versus pursuing a pastorate. How do you help them distinguish what, might, what God might be calling them to, Tom? How do you help them discern between a call to the pastorate and, let's say, a call to the academy? Well, you might not want to hear this, but i I tell them that <laughs> I tell them that if if they can't cut it in the pastorate, go ahead and serve the academy. 
<laughs> but you know, the Christ died for the church and I don't know how we can faithfully serve Christ without being churchmen and the best academicians, the best Christian theologians and servants in the Christian Academy that I know are devoted churchmen. And so typically with younger guys, what I discover is this, there's this real uh, uh, kind of romanticized view of the work of the Academy. And they think, oh, that's kind of the pinnacle. That's the way it was when, when I was doing my PhD work. In fact, I, I applied, I didn't apply it. I went to interview at one school, I won't name it, uh, to, for PhD work. And the, the convener of the PhD program was interviewing me. He said, why do you want to do a PhD? What do you want to do? I said, well, I want to be a pastor. And he said, you just want to be a pastor? So you don't need a PhD to be a pastor. He said, the only guy I know that's a pastor with a PhD is Jim Boyce. He was now the late Jim Boyce at 10th Pres in Philadelphia. He said, if you called him, he'd tell you he never uses it. <laughs> and so I began looking for an exit strategy immediately. You know, how do I get out of this interview and, and get on my way? I did not go to school there. And then in my PhD seminars, you know, every time they would meet at the beginning of the semester, they'd go around, what do you want to do? What are your plans? And everybody's, well, I want to, I want to teach in a college. I want to teach in a seminary. If I can't, I'm willing to be a pastor. And I just started saying, well, I want to be a pastor, you know, but if I can't, I'm willing to teach in the seminary or college, if, you know, if that's all I can do. So I, I don't denigrate the academy. I don't, you know, I, I, I want to be gracious about that. But, man, I would encourage every man who's gifted and who has, uh, has had a church's affirmation on him to pursue ministry in the church. Now, we need academicians. I'm grateful for these guys that have expertise in the various areas that have served the church well. But we all know what happens and what can happen, what usually does happen in academies. Uh, they just they you know, drift away from the church and they become an entity to themselves. The, the uh, academics speak to one another. They write for one another. They serve the academy. And the church kind of gets to be an afterthought, if anything. Uh, we're in a healthy place right now, more healthy than any time in my lifetime, I think, with evangelical uh, seminaries and colleges. I think we've seen wonderful things happen, but we're foolish if we think that we're immune to the very plagues that have uh, wreaked havoc on churches from the academy in generations past. So I would tell a man he's got to be a churchman. If he has this idea that he just wants to go live in a library somewhere and study and research and produce materials, um, he, he needs to see himself as a servant of the church. And if the best way you can do that is in a classroom, then okay, do that. But don't, but do that as a churchman. Still work in the nursery. You know, still teach a Sunday school class. Be a churchman. Yeah, it, it occurs to me when you were referencing the London uh, Baptist Confession earlier that you know when you think about early church history and and some of the creeds that were developed, some of the confessions, uh, some of the councils that were formed that the people being sent there were pastor theologians. Amen. That's right. And that those those two were always viewed to be one role and that it wasn't until later on that we began to separate those out and mm. and uh, and you know and have the academy separate from the church. Yeah, you're exactly right. You think about the greatest theologians that history in the history of the church, who were they? Every one of them were pastors. Augustine, Calvin, Luther, I mean, all of them saw themselves as pastors. And 
So yeah, we've lost that. But God's grace, that's coming back again. I mean, again, it's far better today than any time in my lifetime. But we we still tend to have that same uh, sense of the academy's the pinnacle. Yeah, Tom, as you were talking, I was I was thinking the idea of pastor theologian and that that you've been the picture, a picture for us of what a pastor theologian looks like. Um, one of the interesting things for me that I've had the opportunity to experience here locally is that the folks who hang out with you, so the young men who come and do internships or residencies or work with you, uh, you develop them, obviously by the Spirit of God, into pastor theologians themselves. So what does that process look like? What Are there certain things that you walk through with younger people that are focusing on ministry, or is it just, hey, just follow me in life and see what I do, and it just kind of rubs off, or... Well, I think it's probably both in. I mean, some of it's very intentional. Um, you know, there are certain things that ought to be studied and considered. Um, certainly just getting to the point where you understand that theology matters and that you ought to be as careful in your theological understanding and then expressions as you can be. That, that That's huge. So everybody's a, every Christian's a theologian and every pastor's a theologian. And he ought to be the best one he can be. So study and learn and then communicate. And systematic theology, I love systematic theology because it is a good discipline. And, and by that, I mean it disciplines the way that I think and the way that I speak. Systematic theology can be untethered from the Scripture and it becomes dangerous, but the, the Scripture should always be refining our uh, our particular doctrinal expressions and, and understandings. And if that's happening then the more rigorous our understanding of the biblical teaching is, the more firm our theological grid becomes. And that grid falls over our minds. So when somebody says something that, that doesn't get shouldn't get through, it doesn't get through, it gets stuck. And you might be able to e- easily see why it doesn't get through and dismiss it. But other times you just have to set it aside and say, well, that seems like it ought to get through, but it didn't. So I need to think about that more. And then it also works the other way. When I'm speaking, there are times that some stuff wants to come out of my mouth and it just gets stuck. And I know it doesn't sound right. You know, I can't figure out why it doesn't sound right right now. I'm going to have to put it aside and think about it and figure out a better way to say it. Or maybe it should be said and my grid's wrong and I need to refine my theology more by scripture. So just getting guys to think that theology is serious, that all of life is theological. Certainly pastoral ministry is theological. You're not going to do it well if you're not thinking theologically or trying to learn to think theologically about it. So that's that's crucial. Um, I've become increasingly committed over the years to thinking about pastoral ministry in terms of pastoral theology. And so that's, that's kind of a, an area that I can consider of great interest and importance in my own life. So I try to help guys think about things in that realm or read and study in that realm. And yeah, just hanging around and talking about these things uh, tends to be useful as well. Tom, I'm going to uh, make this the last question, but just picking up on what you said on pastoral theology, what what are the books that you recommend guys read to uh, broaden their understanding of pastoral theology? Well, I think certainly the uh, the classic books of theology, a couple of them that, that I just recommended this morning, sort of fresh on my mind, is uh, Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. I think that's the most important book of the 16th century. Uh, certainly Calvin's Institutes would be up there. I mean, it's Calvin's Institutes, people get intimidated because it's so big, but it's very warm. I mean, it is pastoral, and, and I, I think it's 
incredibly valuable. Charles Bridges is another classic one. It's called The Christian Ministry. And uh, boy, I, you know, I go back to that time and time again. Spurgeon's Lectures to My Students is classic. Uh, Tom Nettles has written one that I think is going to be just uh, useful for generations. Oh boy, the name just escaped me. It's on it's on Charles Spurgeon. Um, what is the name of his book on Spurgeon? But it's on pastoral theology. I, when when Tom was writing it, he was sending me chapters along the way, and then afterwards, it just asked me to kind of give him an evaluation of it. And the the way I worded it is that you know Tom Nettles understands that for Charles Spurgeon, everything was pastoral ministry and uh, Tom agreed with that assessment I think that's what he captured with Spurgeon the book's name is Living by Revealed Truth and it's just a uh, life and pastoral theology of Spurgeon I think it's going to be have a long shelf life so those would be some just um, that I would recommend to any anybody that aspired to the pastorate and Tom if somebody wants more information on uh, on founders ministry where where would they go uh, founders.org. That's yeah, founders.org. F-O-U-N-D-E-R-S dot O-R-G. And that's not just information. I have noticed that you have some new swag uh, <laughs> that I'm seeing on your website and on your social media, which is, I think, that's got to be a new part to Founders Ministries, right? Have you ever had t-shirts and mugs before, or, or have I just not seen it? <laughs> yeah, Jamie, you're being kind even asking that question. You know the answer to that question. Uh, that came this, in 97, a yeah. year after the, the site started. Yeah, yeah. So, But seriously, that, they do have some great uh, shirts and, and mugs, and yeah. and I'm assuming that that goes to help the ministry and, and the, the things you produce. So, Excellent. Well, Tom, thank you. Uh, thanks first for serving your church so faithfully for 31 years. Um, thank you also for serving Summit Church, and I'm I'm the recipient and beneficiary of that now that I'm getting to know these wonderful people. And uh, finally, thanks for just taking the time to share all you've learned or, or some of what you've learned with our listeners on today's podcast. Well, it's been my joy and a real privilege to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity and. Uh, we, we pray for Summit Church regularly uh, in our public gatherings on Sunday and love the work that's going on there. And we have benefited tremendously from that connection and fellowship. For our listeners, just a reminder that the, the podcast is part of a suite of services from amicalled.com. So if you want to go on there, you'll find there's dozens of articles. And we're actually just about to cross the threshold of 50 podcasts with, uh, with folks like Trip Lee and Andy Crouch and Russ Moore and a bunch of other guys. So um, also one other point, that, and that is that we've made some transitions with the online leadership course called Next Steps, where we've just converted it from a one-time fee of $79 to a monthly subscription service. So you might want to check that out as well. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for being a part of this podcast. And we hope that you're able to check us out again on the Am I Called podcast. Mm -hmm.